0: That was a sneak preview to what's about to happen in just a second. That was not the intro video. That was the intro part of the sermon video. wasn't that clear when I sent that out, apparently. Um, Let's shout at each other. Let's shout together. What do we do? Love God and love others. What do we say? I love God and I love you. And we say, see you later, youth group. If you're in the youth group and you want to go upstairs, go ahead and head upstairs. Uh, You saw one of the sneak previews right there of our sweet video. Uh, you missed, it was uh, follow the leader and they were jumping around the building. That was that one in case you were, yeah, we'll get that one one last time next week for those death, death-defying death parkour folks. All right, in life, uh, some people are really good at like their thing, right, their particular thing. Like Mike Trout, he's really good at baseball. Uh, Jeff Bezos is really good at taking my money, right? When he puts stuff online, I'm buying that thing all the time and I know it's going straight into his pocket and I don't even mind. I pay for Amazon Prime, and they ship it free, and I buy stuff, and then I watch movies that he makes. It's like amazing. And so he's taking all my money. He's really doing a great job at taking my money. But that kid that we just saw, that was like a 10-year-old kid or something, that kid is killing it at cup stacking. Now, I don't know if you ever saw cup stacking. Let's get part of that video again. I just want to see that kid, because I got thrown off by it. I don't know if we could skip through I'll talk to you this. World Sports Stacking Association, as if there's such a thing. And so he has to make three different pyramids, in case you didn't know about cup stacking. So he's got to make little ones, then two medium ones, and then one large one. So that was happening in 4.8 seconds. He's got to stack them and unstack them. And so it's pretty exciting when I, I don't know why cup stacking is interesting to me. Um, that, that's the uh, inner homeschooler, uh, the, the homeschooler in me. But watch this kid. He's just, there's a little one, three little ones, two big ones. And then a and then the massive one, and then down, four seconds, boom. So I'll say that guy, that kid is killing it at cup stacking, right? Like, I tried to do a minute to win it one, and I can't do a, the pyramid in a minute, and then come down. And so that's pretty amazing. And so today we're going to look at a guy who was really killing it in terms of following God, and the guy in this Old Testament, his name is uh, Daniel. And uh, I like Daniel, he's my favorite Old Testament person. Because he really is the cup stacking genius of the Old Testament. Like, there's guys, the Bible's full of guys and girls who have lots of flaws and they do all sorts of things that are messed up. But Daniel, in all of the book of Daniel and all the recording and all the history that we have about him, everything's really positive. Like, it looks like he, he did it right. He followed God really well. And so we want to look at his life as a, one of the leaders that we can follow. So, some of you, if you've been at, spent any time at church or or even around sort of even a Christian culture, you know about like Daniel and the lion's den. You've heard of that kind of thing. And so th- this is that, that Daniel. He was taken slave when he was a young person by the Babylonians as they conquered Israel. They actually just accidentally conquered Israel. They were going down to fight Egypt, and Israel was in the way, so they conquered them on the way. <laughs> you know, like, oh, we'll take your nation too as we go fight them. And so they, they were uh, conquering the Babylonians, and they killed a lot of the Israelites and they took a bunch of them as slaves, Daniel being one of them. And here was Nebuchadnezzar, the king of of Babylon. His idea was to take the best and the brightest of the nations they conquered and then come serve him. So he got their best doctors, their best minds, their best scientists, and then they came and served in his court. Here's how Daniel records it. Then the king, so he had just conquered the city of Jerusalem. Then the king, Nebuchadnezzar, he ordered Ashpenaz, his chief uh, of court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and from nobility. And he was looking for young men that didn't have any physical defects, that were handsome, that were showing aptitude for every kind of learning. They were already well-informed, they were quick to understand, and they were qualified to serve in the king's palace. So he's going to then teach them the language and the literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table, and they were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were going to enter into the king's service. Among those who were chosen uh, were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So here's this dude, Daniel. The qualifications to get chosen for this slave duty, to be captured rather than killed, were... To like have this amazing life, to be nobility, to be good looking, to be smart, to be great at what you do, to also have attended school, you know, to have a good personality, to be able to interact with people well. And so Daniel, he has everything going for him. He had all of those things that they were looking for. That means his life was really good. He had a family who loved him. He had a people group that he was proud of. He was in the nobility of this people group. He was he wasn't living hand to mouth. He wasn't He was was doing well. And then he lost everything. He lost his family. He lost his homeland. He lost his comforts. He lost his future. He lost his own freedom. But even in this situation, though he lost everything, he's taking this slave to this foreign country, he decides not to go against God. Even though a lot of bad stuff happened really quick, he decides not to go against God. In Daniel, the next verse here in 1.8, Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and the wine. And he asked the chief official to, to have permission not to defile himself in this way. And so this is just talking about a dietary law that the Jews had. So in the Old Testament, there's a lot of laws. And one of the laws is you can only eat a certain kind of meat. There's some meats you can't eat. And the ones you do, you have to have it prepared correctly, what we say kosher nowadays in, uh, in America and in modern Judaism. And so you had to have kosher meat, and you couldn't eat things like uh, lobster and, and eagles right, and salamanders. And so there were some things you couldn't eat. And so this really small kind of law, Daniel, even though he's in the middle of this captivity, says, I'm not going to break even the small God law. I'm going to follow God completely. And then he follows God, even if it means trouble for himself. He says, oh, I'm not going to eat that food. <laughs> You don't have a lot of choice. You're the slave. You're not the master anymore. You don't get to tell them. You know, I'm not going to eat your, you know, steak or your filet mignon. I'm going to have, you know, bread and water. I'm not sure it works that way. And uh, even though it could be in trouble, this he's going to say, I'm not going to turn against God. I'd rather face the trouble. And this isn't the first time he's going to get in trouble for following God. Now it turns out that God eventually he actually shows favor on Daniel and on the Babylonian officials who are looking over Daniel's life. And so they say, okay, we'll give you your kind of food that you want, but you better be better than everybody else. And Daniel's like, I promise God's going to come through. And God comes through. He allows Daniel and his friends, uh, though they have a different diet, though they don't break God's law, then he allows them to be even smarter, even better, even stronger, even faster than the other guys that were in training. And so uh, he ends up uh, coming into Nebuchadnezzar's court, and he's serving Nebuchadnezzar. Now, one, one day, Nebuchadnezzar has this dream, and, uh, and he asks his wise men and his advisors to interpret the dream, but he's a little suspicious. Nebuchadnezzar is a really suspicious dude. He's kind of a questionable person, and, but he's suspicious of his own advisors, so he says, I'm not going to tell you the dream. You tell me the dream, then you interpret it, because if you just try to tell me the interpretation, like I don't know if you're just BSing me. And he says, and you do it now, or I'm going to kill you all. Because I'm paying you. You're eating on my dime. You're living here. I'm killing every one of you if you can't tell me my dream and then tell me what it means. And they're like, nobody's ever done this. That's not how it works. We have a book. They had a book of dream interpretations. They would open it. It's a tree. Okay, tree means, uh, you know, lightning means this. And that's how they would do it. But they're like, like, nobody can do that. That's not real. That's like uh, nobody can see other people's minds or dreams. And so Nebuchadnezzar says, okay, I'm going to kill you all. And Daniel, uh, he's like part of the wise men. He's part of the advisors. And so he's lumped into this group. And so he's going to get killed. But God reveals to Daniel what the dream is and the interpretation of the dream. And so then Daniel shows up to Nebuchadnezzar. And then he tells him this. And he doesn't take any credit for himself. Watch what Daniel says to Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 2. He says, the king asked Daniel, also called Belshazzar, are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? And Daniel said, No. He says, No man, no wise man, no enchanter, no magician, advisor, diviner can explain to the king the mystery that he's asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He's shown the king Nebuchadnezzar what's going to happen in the days to come. Then he tells him his dream and he tells the interpretation of the dream. He says, No, there's no way I can do this. Only God in heaven can do this. Now, that would have been. God had already revealed to him the interpretation. Wouldn't that have been a great time to kind of take credit? Like, oh, yeah, God God did it, but let me tell you, king, what what I have here for you. A little bit later, his friends get thrown into the fiery furnace. That's a famous one. Uh, Same king gets mad again, throws him in a furnace, but God miraculously delivers him. In his middle ages, uh, Daniel's uh, living, uh, and then uh, this really weird thing happens. He interprets some writing on a wall that this like, ghost hand shows up and writes on the wall, like all Scooby-Doo, like, I don't know, Scoob, let's get out of here. And like, so they say, who's the janitor? No, It was God who wrote on the wall uh, in this like spooky hand. And then everyone freaked out. And, and it turned out the hand said, like, oh, you're going to get destroyed. And Daniel's like, oh, sorry, I hate to interpret this for you, but it means you're all going to die. And they're like, okay, thanks. And then they all died. In his old age, he, got, uh, he actually gets the death penalty uh, for praying. Some officials set up a trap out of jealousy for Daniel, realizing his Achilles heel is his faithfulness to God. And so they pass a law against praying. In Daniel 6, it records it. Now, Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps, those are like governors, by his exceptional qualities, that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. At this, the administrators and satraps, they tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. Well, they couldn't find any corruption in him because he was trustworthy, and he was neither corrupt nor negligent. Oh, dang politician, first one ever. Finally, these men said, look, we're never going to find any basis for charges against this guy, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God." And so they say, let's pass a law. They pass a law. They say, no praying, because we know Daniel does that. Now, here's Daniel's response to the no praying law, Daniel 6 and 10. Now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the window opened towards Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and he prayed, giving thanks to God just as he has done before. Man, that's so gangster. Like, He doesn't change his prayer routine, and he doesn't even pull the curtains. He's like, yeah, what, here's some prayer with the window wide open. He doesn't doesn't change a moment. So he gets thrown into a den of executional lions for that faithfulness to prayer. But then God delivers him from that. Sends an angel to protect him, and he comes out okay. And then lastly, he has this incredible future prophecy that he sees, like a whole bunch of weird visions and uh, future-telling prophetic stuff. Faithfully following God for decades. He actually lives through, through several, multiple kings and several empires. It starts with the Babylonians and then the Medes and the Persians. So se- several empires and, and many kings. Daniel outlasts them all. And like I said, he's my favorite because... He just seems to do life right. He's the cup stacker of the Old Testament, the cup stacker kid. He's, he's killing it at being a God follower. So looking at Daniel, like out of the many possible areas that we could follow, here are just four this morning, four areas that we can follow the leader in. The first is Daniel's integrity. We saw it all throughout his narrative, his willingness to do the right thing, even when no one else would, would notice or even when no one was watching when he was a young man, he was unwilling to defile himself with that food. But, but who would have known? He's captive. He's not with Israelites. He's in Babylon. Him and four dudes, three other dudes. That's it. Who would have known? No priest would have known. His parents wouldn't have known. Nobody would have known. How easy would it have been to justify breaking this small dietary rule? Look at the circumstances I'm in, God. I'll just break it this once. I'll just break it this time. It's not that big of a deal. And yet he doesn't because of his integrity. He could have said, like, look, it doesn't harm anyone. Surely because of my situation, I could take a pass on this one. It's not like murder or something major. It's just a dietary law, and I am in a really tough situation. Do we make excuses that are just like that? Perhaps it's pornography. Like, no one is going to know. It doesn't hurt anybody. Or maybe it's for you getting drunk. Like, I'm not saying drinking is bad, but, but getting drunk. Look, I had a hard week. God will give me a pass on this one. Or It's my friend's birthday, so it's okay this one time. Maybe maybe I could cuss out that guy because like he deserves it anyway, (laughs) or gossip about that person since they're they're a bad person anyway, and so the gossip is probably okay then. I mean it's not that big of a deal. Because anyone else made those type of excuses, I have, where I say this and it's just so small it doesn't matter. I'm in this situation it'd be awkward not to blah 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 blah. But I want to follow the leader and avoid that kind of thing, even in the small things moving forward. Think back to that lion situation. They wanted to accuse him of wrongdoing, but no matter how they tried, they couldn't find anything corrupt in any of his interactions with anybody. There was nothing, no dirt to be found, because he lived with integrity. His entire life, regardless of what laws were put on the books or what was culturally acceptable, he was willing to lose it all rather than compromise. I think integrity is worth emulating. And when we have integrity, it allows us to dare to be different, which is our second area to follow. Daniel dares to be different. He wasn't afraid to be different. He doesn't give in to fit in. There's this uh, Lady Brene Brown, um, spiritual, not a Christian probably, uh, at least in terms of probably classical definition of Christian. She, She may say she is... But I'm not, so I'm not talking about her theology, but she makes a really interesting point about belonging. Now check out this quote from her. She says, the opposite of belonging is fitting in. The opposite of belonging is fitting in. Belonging is who you are. Fitting in is who they are. Fitting in is, fitting in is you becoming what you think they want. So I thought that was really interesting that she was saying that fitting in is, is what they want. And when I fit in, I become the things that they want. I don't be the thing that I am. And so belonging is just uh, daring to be different, daring to be who I am, and not having that desire to just fit in. Because fitting in is what the culture wants, what the people want, what somebody else wants for me, maybe not what God wants for me. Daniel just doesn't conform to the culture that he found himself in. Rather, he becomes countercultural. When that part about the training and the food, that kind of stuff that that Daniel would get defiled with, the Bible says that he resolved in his heart not to defile defile himself. Without hesitation, he requested that he and his friends be given a different diet than than what was on the Babylonian menu. Daniel didn't eat it just because it was put before him. He dared to be different. Despite the efforts and the they stated up front the Babylonians so that they can learn Babylonian culture and life, despite the culture trying to shape him, he says, I'm gonna be dare to different be different. Even the consequences are pretty high for him. He could get in a lot of trouble, he doesn't have freedom. He's the slave in this system, and even in that system, he decides to be dare to be different. He doesn't give in to fit in. So I'm thinking about our lives and our workplaces and our schools. There'll be times when we're asked from time to time to give in just to get along. But don't make waves. Don't become that Christian fanatic. Like, You can have your Bible, but don't put it on your desk. You can have your Jesus, but just don't talk to anyone about it. You can have your, your morals and your codes, but don't, don't impose that on somebody else. And just, just fit in. Don't cause waves. Don't make a scene. Don't get all holier than thou. And the temptation is to set aside our standards and our beliefs in order to fit in. But I would say follow Daniel and stand up. Stand up for God and stand up for the work of God in your life. I I say this, I think that you need to dare to be different from non-believers that are in your life. But I also say that you need to dare to be different than the stereotypes that the non-believers have about you as a Christian be different than non-believers we should be, we should have a different moral standard we should be talking and looking at different things we should be interacting in a different way but not so much that we become the stereotype that they think dare to be different than the stereotype, so rather than being judgmental, be loving rather than being like, oh look down come alongside and Jesus hung out with prostitutes and, and people who had betrayed their own people, tax collectors and the worst kind of people around Drunks. And and he didn't it didn't rub off on him like he was somehow sinful. He didn't have to stand away from them. And so, as we dare to be different, it doesn't mean that you don't be near sinners. It doesn't mean that you condemn or look poorly upon nonbelievers. Rather, you look at them with grace and love and kindness. And if they spit on you, you turn the other cheek. That's countercultural. Not just standing up and saying, no, your values are wrong in a big hate picket sign. Nothing like that. But rather stand up and dare to be different than the stereotypes that sometimes Christians have. Don't fall into office gossip. Listen more. Answer graciously. Extend grace to all people. Don't return evil for evil. Like, where does Daniel get the ability to do these kind of things? How can he be so daring in in his situation? Where, did, where can we get that same ability from also? Where did he get it from? And I think he got it from our third follow area, which is prayer. This is a major part of Daniel's life. Daniel knew where to go for the answers. Check out what it says in Daniel 2. So this was when uh, the king was going to kill everyone because they didn't know the dream. Daniel returns to his house. This is before, this is before God revealed to him the plan. Uh, the dream and the interpretation. Daniel returned to his house and he explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And he, and he said to them, and he urged them to plead for mercy from God of heaven. He asked them to pray with him concerning these mysteries so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. So after the king had that dream that no one could interpret, Daniel and his friends took the matter to prayer immediately. And God answered them with the necessary wisdom and the discernment to handle the situation. God gave him the interpretation. He gave him the dream. In a separate instance, towards the end of the, his life, we saw that he was willing to die rather than stop praying. He got himself tossed into lions for refusing to pray, to stop praying. And I wonder, in real life, what would we do under the threat of death? Now, there's no threat of death in America for praying. We don't have it at all. So we've got to imagine it, though. What would you and I do if someone threatened our lives? If you pray again, I will kill you. We would pray silently with our eyes open. Yeah, God, I might pray. <laughs> he didn't even know. Maybe you wouldn't pray at all. Probably some variation of those. Pray in secret, baby but you probably wouldn't go all public with it and be like, I'm going to pray now. You know? Oh, you don't want me to pray? Like this, you mean, dear Jesus? You know, like, like we're not going to will figure out. You know, I'm praying right now. See, they didn't even know. I'm praying for you all right now. <laughs> Got them. But Daniel's like, nope. Prayer is this important to me that it doesn't matter. Even under the threat of death, it could not keep Daniel from praying. Do we have that kind of commitment, this necessity in our souls to pursue God in prayer? Or is this maybe an area of growth that we need to follow the leader, Daniel? in? Like I think our, our church is absolutely growing in this area. I see people praying for others now more than they have at any time in our church life. All the time, I see people praying for one another. But I'm like that mermaid girl. I want more. I want to be where the people are. I want to see, I want to see them praying in the courtyard and upstairs and, and at their homes and in cafeterias and at work and in your cars and with others. And I want to see you praying alone. Well, I wouldn't be able to see that because you wouldn't be alone. And out loud and silently and over all the big things of your life and over all the little things of your life and praying for people who need it, and praying for people who are even rejecting Jesus, praying for your enemies and praying for your friends and your family and those that you love, praying over sickness, praying over hurts, praying over rejoices. I want to see more of it, where that it's vital to us that if someone threatened us with death, we'd say, death, bring death, because I'm not quitting praying. It is too important to my soul. Prayer was Daniel's lifeline. Let's make it ours as well. But I think that's only really possible if we trust God. Daniel's final follow the leader attribute is his ability to trust God. See, if I don't trust God, I'm not going to pray about something. After God's miraculous delivery from lions, we learn this about the situation. This is what the Bible tells us, what Daniel writes about the situation. The king was overjoyed, and he gave orders to lift Daniel out of the lions, and when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him because he had trusted in his God. See, Daniel was like, throw me in there. I don't care. I trust God one way or the other. If I get killed, I get killed. I, I'm just going to trust God. You say you're going to kill me if I pray. I'm just going to trust God. You say that I have to eat these things, but I'm not going to. I'm going to trust God. You say I, I have to uh, you know, know a dream. I don't know anything about dreams, but I'm going to trust God. Perhaps there's no greater description of this excellent leader. Because he trusted God with the results, life or death, it allowed him to pray confidently. He could dare to be different, secure in his own identity, because he trusted in God's ability to provide the best path forward. He lived with integrity because he trusted that God was more important than fudging on all the little things. He trusted God with all the little things. And this great power of trust is available to every one of us today. And it's even more so available than it was to Daniel because we have the Holy Spirit who literally comes into our lives and he comes next to us soul to soul. Like your your physical body can hold your soul, but it can also hold the Holy Spirit And the Spirit comes alongside every one of us after we accept Jesus Christ as the Lord, our Savior. We have a Savior who has provided a way into the throne room of God, who has demonstrated through miracles and the resurrection of the dead that we can trust Him. There's no place that I'd rather be than trusting in God. Like most of life, I can't control anyway. So it's far better to just trust the one who can control things. Would you stand with me today? We're going to worship and then we're going to close this service.